Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And thank you all those who came to the Rock and Roll Politics live show in Birmingham on Tuesday. And by the time you listen to this, thank you to those who have been to who went to King's Place on Thursday night. I'm in Belfast on Sunday at the Black Box and at the Rope Tackle in Shoreham. Uh, next Wednesday and we'll put all the blurb with the podcast all the details of those live events but now what a few days in British politics it is quite something when a apparently mighty prime minister a landslide winner in December 2019 a winner I keep on thinking about it of the Hartlepool by-election not so long ago as a Prime Minister gaining a seat from Labour, appearing then because of his electoral success, almost omnipotent in the government. And there, a lot of you I know will have watched Boris Johnson in front of the Privileges Committee fighting for his political career. It is quite an arc that we need to make sense of, and we need to make sense of it partly by making comparisons with other prime ministers. This is a chance to make sense of leadership in all its epic drama. And who better to make sense of it than Michael Cockrell, the broadcaster and author who has, as you will all know, followed closely many prime ministers, and in a way for television made unique sense of their lives with those glorious profiles, which included, of course, them, the leaders, watching archive of themselves and others and many other wonderful techniques. Uh, And Michael's latest book, which um, he'll be talking about uh, at festivals and with us now, reflects on his whole life in which these leaders have played a big part. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Could I begin by asking you for your reflections on Boris Johnson in that select committee? Um, This was, I mean, we've had many other prime ministers being interrogated retrospectively, most famously Tony Blair, but here was over Iraq, but here was someone who, as I said at the beginning, December 2019, big election win, and now this. What were your thoughts? I thought exactly that when he came into the room. This this was the guy who only two years ago won this, this vast majority and was briefing for a long time thereafter that he would be in power for at least 10 years, at least until the 30s. How are the mighty fallen? And I thought the, the whole proceedings began like a sort of West End farce, because it began with Boris holding the St. James Bible, saying, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is a guy who spent his whole life not telling the truth <laughs> and running away from the truth. And uh, as his, his former mistress, uh, Petronella Watt, said, said about him, lying comes to him as easily as breathing. The trouble is he's not a very good liar. <laughs> and so I thought this was, it started off, you know, like a black comedy. And I think it continued to be a black comedy. Another wonderful satirical moment uh, yesterday was when um, Harriet Harman, who was the chair uh, of the Privileges Committee, or was the chair in the chair, she remembered that um, Boris once was um, the motoring correspondent for GQ. And often the people at GQ, 
found he would write his pieces and when he when they got the car back he clearly hadn't um, driven it she used this wonderful analogy when he was saying he didn't know about um, all the all these parties were, were going on he had no idea all the time even though he was at five of them he had no idea and um Someone said, you know, um, didn't you look and see all the bottles on the table? Oh, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't look. I didn't look at see see things like that. Miss Harmon said said, if I was driving a car at a hundred miles an hour and saw the speedometer said a hundred miles an hour, it would be a bit odd, wouldn't it? If I said somebody had assured me that it, that, that I wasn't driving at a hundred miles an hour, because you'd have seen it with your own eyes, and I thought it was a devastating put down by the chair of the committee, and probably gives us some uh, view, inkling of uh, where the committee is going. It is devastating, and of course, it would have been devastating for him because he is so unused to intensive scrutiny, isn't he? He's his genius in a way has been able to avoid much scrutiny. But you, of course, famously spent some time with him before he was leader with one of your profiles in which he said, you know, if the ball came out of the scrum or whatever. If I the might ball were to come loose from the back of the scrum, it would be great to have a go at. Yeah. <laughs> what, I mean, so you spent some time with him then because filming is quite intensive. What was your impression of him as a person before we reflect on leadership? Interesting. He goes really right the way back to um, when he was born in in New York General Hospital. And uh, his mother, Charlotte, said when he was born, he came out and he had this this uh, mop of blonde hair. And he 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 was huge. He looked as if he was ready to go to prep school. The Beatles were were in New York at exactly the same time, and all the other expectant mothers in the world went to see this this new huge blonde haired baby, and um, they called him the the fifth Beatle. So there's always always been this in his life that he's a sort of chosen one. He sees it himself, you know, when his sister Rachel, uh, who was born eighteen months after him. Um, when she was about three or four, said she wanted to be world queen. And he said, you can't be world queen because I'm going to be world king. And from that moment on, he, he, he thought that the rules never applied to him. When he was at Eton, his, his housemaster said exactly that, that he feels that he should always be given special preference because he is special. And, of course, that made uh, the other day so powerful in a way because finally it was catching up on him you know he's escaped so much but uh, what i wanted to explore with you michael if it's okay is that you see, i've always had this theory which has been greatly challenged by recent months and last year which is actually prime ministers on the whole endure much longer than fashionable orthodoxy suggests they will if you take when you sort of began following them closely personally uh, the late 60s and Harold Wilson, there was feverish speculation that he would be toppled by Roy Jenkins. He famously uttered that in in the midst of a speech. You may be wondering what's going on. I'll tell you what's going on. I'm going on. But the fact that he had to do it showed the feverish mood. But Wilson survived another X number of years until 76 when he voluntarily resigned. Do you think that era where prime ministers endured for much longer has gone and they are now genuinely fragile as truss and johnson has dem- demonstrated 
recently prime ministers have have, have lasted for a long time. Um, uh, Mrs. Thatcher lasted for for a very long time. Um, Tony Blair lasted uh, for maybe ten year, did over ten year, ten years, determined to do so. David Cameron six seven years. So, um, but it suddenly speeded up from the moment from the moment of the result of the referendum. Everything has has gone at warp speed with with extraordinary turnover of of ministers and prime ministers and so on. I think part of it is is social media. Um, that that you know in in our early days as as political reporters there was a there was a pattern of how long a story would last, but now it often doesn't last beyond uh, you know, an hour before it's it's sort of changed altogether we don't have and and I think um number ten has been like that, especially in recent times um with Boris Johnson. Um, and Liz Truss and so on, that, that, that it's you know, almost since 2016, it, it's been like being chained to a lunatic whilst this, the kind of speed that has been going on. Do you think it is more underlying events that Brexit has unleashed various kind of volcanic eruptions that would challenge a prime minister of titanic strength? Um, or has Brexit thrown up people who are unsuitable for the demands of leadership? We've had uh, Theresa May. Uh, she didn't last very long. Liz Truss, famously, few a few. Uh, you wouldn't have even had time to do a profile. Of Liz exactly, Truss. the lettuce would have um, gone off already. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, and and then we've had uh, Johnson. I mean, you you have met and known a range of prime ministers. Are these, irrespective of where people stand politically, are these just uh, people who were unsuitable compared to some of the others that you knew uh, for the demands of leadership? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I, th- I think I think um, Boris Johnson certainly falls in, into that category, partly because he w- he was different from almost from all other prime ministers because he w- he was. He was he was the great entertainer, you know. He was um, Archie Rice in the Great Entertainer at the start, but um, somehow um, the act has gone cold on him. Um, and e- even yesterday, you know, here was here was Boris, the guy who was who had so many of the the skills of political communication and getting over to to um, much of the, the country, and and partly he did it by jokes. And Boris had to sit there um, yesterday for, for for three and a half hours without telling any jokes. It was sooner Hamlet without the Prince of Denmark. Yeah, it, it, it was, it's an interesting contrast. There he was on television in front of a big audience mm. to compare it with when he presented Have I Got News For You? And the contrast is extraordinary, isn't it? And, of course, it was the Have I Got News For You, Johnson, that a lot of people... Mm. Seem to fall for yes, which which um, made um, uh, the, the the editor of, of Private Eye f- often feel guilty that 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 have I got news for you? Sort of um, propelled uh, Johnson into into the public eye and, and probably helped um, him becoming a Tory leader. It is easy from that to conclude that the 
showbiz prime ministers uh, might not survive very long. That in the end, you get found out quite quickly. You get found out, and and uh, it's you suffer uh, career fatigue. Um, that, that it's like when um, box sets come out um, and people go through them, the whole thing, all, all six episodes. Uh, you know. Over the evening, exactly. Everything is yeah. speeded up like that. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things that I, I mean, it's quite depressing that uh, someone can rise on the back of a performance and have I got news for you. But I also think it's quite interesting that some of the prime ministers who are very different from the Johnson model were emphatically not showbiz and were mastery of detail and on top of their briefs. Um, I'm thinking of people like Edward Heath, who I know you uh, knew, and uh, Gordon Brown. Um, They too did not last very long, did they? They too didn't last very long, mainly because part of it, a part of leadership is you, you have to have a certain amount of charisma. Um, and it's not just the sort of showbiz charisma. They're just, there are certain people uh, that you take to straight away when you meet them and certain people you don't. And so, some, some of them, uh, people say, you know, He's his own worst enemy. No, I'm his own worst enemy <laughs> of, of, the, of these people. And, and uh, you take an instant dislike to them. Um, it saves time, they say. And, and, <laughs> and, and there, there, were, there was poor old Ted. Um, he, he, I remember he once said to me, um, I've been thinking about you. Do you have any training for this? I said, no, none at all. Uh, um, I, I sort of parodied what, what I saw. I, I never read anything, never um, do uh, any homework or anything like that, um, in the opposite of what I actually do. And he said, oh, well, that would account for it. Do you have the, <laughs> <laughs> do you have the usual list of boring questions, he said. <laughs> and I said, um, we did the interview, and I said, um, which went a bit better than usual. I said, did you think the, the, the questions um, were as boring as usual? He said, oh, yes, but infinitely more irrelevant today. <laughs> and his, his, his PR man said afterwards, if he's rude to you, it means he likes you. <laughs> it makes you wonder how someone like him got to the very top, wasn't it? I mean, he was the first leader to be elected by Tory MPs. Exactly. And he clearly wasn't one to charm, or maybe I mean, could he charm? I, I did. I never met him. Could he? He could charm. He did have a, a, a certain black sense of humour, um, but he he was very introverted. Introverted about it. Of course, he was chosen because it was thought that he would uh, be the guy who could stand up to Harold Wilson on television. Harold Wilson was the first sort of TV prime minister. He was the first one who understood really how what um, television could do for um, a leader. And uh, it was thought that, that Heath would um, be able to stand up to him on television. Also, in 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 the sixties when he was chosen as leader things were changing there'd been uh, three old etonian tory prime ministers and uh, an old Horovian in, in a row wilson was a grammar school boy um and he ted he was a grammar school boy so that was you know they were already thinking of the image of the the what is needed in, in a prime minister to 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 beat an incumbent yeah and heath had been 
Heath had been a formidable cabinet minister, actually, hadn't he? Uh, under various and led, 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 led us into into Europe. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. I was, I was uh, speaking to a, a, a very senior Labour figure about uh, some of this, and that this person, very young, but had looked back and thought Heath was an extraordinarily talented figure. But anyway, we, he's, he, he didn't last very long. Gordon Brown, it's interesting because he, he could have charisma, but he almost chose not to from the moment he became shadow chancellor to become that robotic figure. So fearful was he of uttering a word out of place. But his arc was extraordinary because he, it was a huge triumph, in my view, to be such a long-serving Labour chancellor, uh, breaking all records on that front. But then he didn't last long in number 10. Yeah, and of course, in his own mind, one of the reasons he didn't show this this private charisma um, was he didn't want to look like Tony Blair. He, he, he publicly disliked or, or what he saw as um, Tony Blair's sort, sort of uh, entertainment um, spin doctoring uh, going on, that, that kind of image-making. He publicly said he didn't like behind the scenes. His, his people were all the time trying to get him to do things um, which would uh, relate more to, to ordinary people. But he, he, he was always defining himself in opposition to, to Tony Blair and had, had spent... Um, 10 years as chancellor in opposition to Tony Blair, not even telling him uh, what was in the budget until the day of the budget. It's interesting, isn't it? The amount of time these highly intelligent, driven people do spend reflecting on how, it's understandable, how they will be perceived. I mean, I saw Neil Kinnock the other night, and he, even though he's over 80, is back to his exuberant self that he was before he became Labour leader. But then in between, um, he he attempted to appear like a sober bank manager, didn't he? So let's, let's, in that context, return to where we are now. I'll ask you about Sunak in a moment. But Boris Johnson... Um, he thinks he's Churchill. I, I, I'm sure he feels bruised today because I think there's an element, a small element of self-awareness in him. I don't know whether you agree with that. Maybe you think there is none. But but do you? is it your sense that yesterday we saw the power finally seeping away altogether, having been re- removed uh, in the summer of last year? This was the final ending. Or do you sense that there is a Churchillian resilience in him? Uh, that means he could bounce back. The the power that he has had for a, a long time, especially in, in the Tory party, uh, is because of Brexit and all that. But if he can't get more than 22 people to rebel with him, how will he get more than you know, hundreds of people to, to, to support him um, when he comes really up against it? And again, it, it does show how... Uh, things move, isn't it? I mean, it was only last September when he attempted that comeback. Yes. Uh, and apparently did manage to secure the support of over 100 MPs before apparently, withdrawing. Apparently. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> um, but it looks as if it, it's gone now, doesn't it? I felt it was it was draining away through him, through, throughout that, that hearing. And I think I didn't. He still sees himself as Churchill, um, 
and he he wrote a famous biography of Churchill, which showed how um, Churchill had spent his career like like Boris. Uh, he was a, he'd been a journalist and so on, and was in the wilderness and so on. And it showed how how in in Boris's book Churchill had modelled his career on that of Boris Johnson, but it may have been <laughs> the other way around. Yes, it occasionally read like a sort of autobiography or a sort of fantasy of an autobiography. Um, and where does this place uh, Rishi Sunak? Because uh, he, presumably he's the prime minister you know least of all the ones you've been following since the 60s. Yes, he hasn't been prime minister for that long either. I know him a bit. He's... <laughs> I think he's had he's been having for the last few weeks a series of, of good weeks, both around the world and you know with the, with the um, renegotiation of the the, the the protocol and so on. Um, and he kind of looks he's he's a tiny chap. He's about five foot six, but he looks a bigger man than, than Boris Johnson um, in terms of the way he's behaved as prime minister. He, he looks like one of the grown-ups in the room. Don't underestimate him. I, I, he, he, at one stage, when he'd resigned from uh, uh, Boris's cabinet, which had helped bring down speed uh, the, the, the downfall fall of Boris, he, he thought he was going to go back up to uh, his constituency in Yorkshire and play for, for the local village cricket team. And from the, the, the picture of him uh, in the papers today and, and playing cricket in, in, in number 10, he looks like a rather elegant batsman. Um, the glasses help. Isn't it funny? What, what, what makes someone leaderly is an interesting yes. question. And he has started to look Leaderly, it's partly because, as you say, he's had good weeks, um, and then people s- start to see leaders in a different light. And they, do you remember at the beginning, people say, "Oh, he hasn't got a political bone in his body," and so on. And, and, and but because he's had a few successes, perceptions can change. Yeah, the glasses thing is a very interesting one because for over the years uh, it's been the other way around. You remember Jack Straw took off his glasses when he wanted to be seen as a potential prime minister. And um, uh, prime ministers themselves hated to be seen with glasses. Tony, Tony Blair wore glasses a lot of the time privately, but he, he didn't want to be seen because it's, it's that, that intimation of, of mortality. We've explored some elements of leadership, the capacity for detail, people like Heath and Brown, the showbiz element. Of course, Wilson had a bit of a showbiz element, but he could could do the detail as well. Uh, From, I mean, you've met and spent time with all of them. Have you got any sense of the essential qualifications for leadership, the the, the essential characteristics? I think you've got to really want to do something you want to change the world you, you you want to make the weather that you have a set of core beliefs that you can fall back on uh, when when the going gets rough I, th- I think that's really important you have to know especially in the, the, this modern world how to co- how to communicate how to get your message across but not through spin but because it's something you believe and you can articulate and, and people can relate to. I mean, one of the one of the interesting things is, say, compared to to my time at university many years ago, um, many people want to go into politics, whereas I think these days many of the brightest and best um, go into the media. And if you have um, the politicians 
who are less bright than their critics. The critics are, are able to be even more devastating than, than their, their fellow MPs. So it's an interesting change that's been going on. And it's interesting as well, you, you obviously did go into the media, um, but was were hooked on politics. And your book, Unmasking Our Leaders, is, is about your sort of life almost in politics. Did you, when did you hit upon the idea that there was space, even on television, which is, is it's, it's difficult on television, to go deeper into what makes up a leader and, 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 and that thing you do of showing them archive of themselves and others. I mean, when did it all begin as an idea for you? That's very interesting. I, I suppose it, it sort of began when I was first up at Oxford when Harold Macmillan uh, was Prime Minister and had just won a, a huge majority of over 100 in 1959. And um, he came and spoke at the Oxford Union and he was so kind of charismatic as as well as fascinating when he talked about um, fighting in the trenches in the First World War and how his group at Balliol, his classics, um, who were all reading classics, how all but one of them were killed uh, in the First World War. And he had a a sense of um, what suffering was like and what what, um, ordinary working class people were like in the trenches he'd sort of learned that and so he he was very different from a from a traditional Tory and I just thought then wouldn't it be fascinating to make films wouldn't it have been fascinating to make films about Gladstone and Disraeli we know what what they look like there's a very small scratchy recording of Gladstone's voice in in the 1890s, uh, but that's it. Um, But what was their their body language? How how would they have dealt with television? All that kind of thing. And one of the things of showing them, uh, the modern prime ministers themselves on television, is that that they look at themselves and they're suddenly transported back to to their prime. I remember Jim Callaghan saying, when he saw some, I showed him this footage of him, in 1947, when he was a, a very junior uh, traffic minister, um, and he said, "What a promising young man! I wonder whatever happened to him." It sparks in the memories of of what they were thinking about at the time. I remember, I remember Ken Clark when I made a film about Kenneth Clark, um, and he said, "How do you want me to play this?" So I said, "Well, I'll be showing you this footage we've been digging out." stuff which you've probably never seen because most leaders and prime ministers and ministers uh, have strong views about television but scarcely had the time to watch it. And certainly in the earlier days, there weren't weren't DVDs or anything, um, iPlayers to watch it on. I said, so I'll show you these clips, some of which you've probably not seen before. I just want you to react naturally. And he said, you mean you want me to sit here and shout at the television like I do at home? I said, you've got it in one. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? 
In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you got, uh, uh, and, and your archive is is part of history now, I mean, it will be, it will be used as source material, but have you got a favourite uh, of your films, profiles, um, one that you thought, wow, this really does show another side to a complex leader? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I hope that, that in a way, almost all of them, the ones when I had proper access say for instance when i filmed uh, for about three months in in uh 2000 uh behind the scenes in number 10 with blair and, and campbell and um peter mandelson um where we really showed what was going on with the, the spin operation there um that was that was one which i i was very happy about and seemed to get down well they gave you complete access, didn't they? Yeah, it was partly yeah, because because, um, because Alistair Campbell thought that, that the Tories were making so much of spin, exactly as uh, Labour had been making um, of Tory sleaze, that if I could show what was really going on behind the scenes in terms of the amount of information that a government has to get out every day, not spun, but just if you have three, four big stories on the same day, it, it mm. clash. So, there, so some of it is not as evil as it might seem with the, with the, with the spin doctors. I, yeah, I remember one, yeah. one day Peter Mandelson um, glid up to me, whatever the bastard <laughs> glide is. You know, you, I'm yes. sure you know this. Uh, I was, conspiracy, yeah. I was um, sort of talking to people in, at a party and... and Suddenly, I, I was aware of a sudden sort of chill in the air, and there was <laughs> a Peter Mandelson who'd got to my shoulder, and he said, "You do the most important thing you can do for a politician, Michael." I said, "What's that, Peter?" He said, "You make them appear human, and then glid glid away." Just as yeah. <laughs> I was yes, about yes, to say, yes. might be difficult with you, Peter, but he, he was <laughs> gone, leaving only the faintest whiff of sulfur. <laughs> to glide is, yeah, the, the verbs were to apply that. Absolutely, these are human beings, and of course, that makes them more interesting. People forget that that if they, if column writers who just stick to a stereotype, it's an easy column to write. But actually, they're more interesting when you remember they are human beings facing nightmarish dilemmas on an hourly basis i mean that is the basis of it isn't it yeah i'm mean, just just thinking about other films i mean i did make films with with margaret thatcher and um i remember saying to her so it was in 1979 during the, the um the general election of 79 that i've been following you during this election campaign um and there sometimes seemed to me to be two mrs thatcher's um one is the one on the campaigning on the factory floor and, and in the, in walk on walkabouts in the streets and talking to ordinary people endlessly interested in the minutiae of their lives, um, and the other is the one on the conference platform, um, full of um, passionate rhetoric. How many Mrs. Thatchers are there? <laughs> and she said in her new newly lowered uh, voice, uh, which uh, she 
been given um, lessons to bring down the tone of her voice. Um, mm. She said, oh, three at least. I said, <laughs> really? What are the three? She said, there's the intuitive one, there's the intellectual one, and there's the one at home. And she said it in mm. such a um, seductive way that people thought there must be something going on between her and me. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, oh, Robin, Day, oh. Robin Day actually who was watching it going out in the studio, didn't say uh, publicly, but in the studio said, the untold story of the 79 election, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher's having an affair with Michael Cockrell. <laughs> that that would have been a big story, Michael. And, 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 and um, yeah, but in, interesting, there's a book to be written on her analysis of the three Margaret Thatchers that you got her to talk about, which highlights the the value of the work that you do. And you'll be talking about your book at, in Oxford on Wednesday, the Oxford Literary Festival, Wednesday afternoon, with clips, I gather. Yes, some of, some of which haven't been seen before. Oh, really? So a guided tour of, of, of these just wonderful humanizing documentaries but humanizing that still brings out flaws i mean it's Absolutely. not it's not hagiographic but it brings out the complexities uh which have been brilliant and thank you very much for uh joining us for the podcast in this uh extraordinary period where once again johnson looms but has sunak escaped this period of the ERG group, Johnson Trust and so on, or will he still be partly defined by it? Perhaps that will be one of the themes the Rock and Roll Politics Podcast Cooperative will be reflecting on in uh, coming days. But thank you, Michael, and thank you all for tuning in. Uh, Let's get together again very soon to make sense of it all. Thank you. Bye. Bye.